Jealousy. The vile tones exemplify the violent, decadent, and destructive elements of whatever it is we call punk rock. One night last week, the negative new underground crushed into the basement of the Colonial to see the punks go at it. The audience was what one might expect for such a soiree. Mostly uh, low types, I think. <laughs> Who does I wonder what I'm... <laughs> I wonder why I'm here. Yeah. I was just saying to somebody, I think I should be at a cocktail party somewhere. But this is anything but a cocktail party. The filthy floors are littered with shattered brown beer bottle glass and the remnants of draft glasses. The tarts in their mock 50s wear are standing up along the shuffleboard table. A young man sprawled on the pool table, doing something symbolic with a pool cue. Boys and girls alike throw their glasses up against the nearest wall, and after a while you tend to recognize shattering glasses by their high-pitched tinkle and the bottles by their bassy thud. These are the people who've come to see the vile tones. They're sleazy. I've known the dude since I was 14, since he was, since Nazi Dog is 14. I shall not divulge into his real name. Um, let's see, what else have I got to say? Um, well, I had fun tonight. You have a job? Yes. What do you work at? I don't want to say. Hi. These vile tones are four unkempt slobs who do all possible to disgust. Their dress is standard punk attire, scruffy jeans, torn-up t-shirts, lots of chains, padlocks, leather, and the kind of sunglasses that went out of style with Marilyn Monroe. Their musical trademark is basic banality, two-chord grinders that sound the same. The vocals, full-blown raspy rotch, the amps cranked up to belch out dirty distortion. Who are these vile tones? What do you think of them? violent, but uh, you stay away from the front and uh, dodge the beer bottles. And... Really? They're flying up there, huh? Yeah. What about the music? Oh, it's great. It's great. Um, Very simplistic? Yeah, yeah. Animalistic. <laughs> are obscene, not sexually, but in a violent sort of way, peppered with a reverence for Nazism, violence, hatred, and discrimination. As the teenaged vamps shake and stop, lead singer Nazi Dog staggers around the stage. He shoves his microphone down into his crotch, pulls it out, and screams a little more. The Nazi Dog grabs a glass of beer, slurps some, throws the rest into the crowd, then smashes the glass on the mic stand. He's lurching now, clutching the glass and wounding himself. Blood is drawn and it streams across his chest. And you're listening to CITR Radio, FM 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And it's time right now for the Nardwar, the human serviette radio show. And who do we have on the line right now? Hello, are you there, caller? I'm still here. Who are you? I am I'm still Don Pyle. Don Pyle, welcome back to the oh, Nardwar to Human Serviette Radio Show. Your fourth time now on the Nardwar to Human Serviette Radio Show. The first time was 24 years ago in October 1990, and then twice <laughs> in about August, you know, September 2014, and now, now, live on the Nardwar to Human Serviette Radio Show. Oh my God, only six more times that I get the set of glasses. Ba-boom! This is part three of the 2014 interview that I'm doing with you, Don Pyle. And this all started, I guess we should give a bit of background. 
How come this all started? Because you were bringing your slideshow to Vancouver. Maybe this is a little background. You could explain your slideshow that you were bringing to Vancouver that's now left Vancouver and played other cities. And what was the initial approach to this interview? Your slideshow. Yes. Yes, I did a slideshow uh, talk um, with photographs that I took, um, some of which are in my book, Trouble in the Camera Club, which is... uh, Photos that I uh, took in Toronto of the beginning of the punk rock scene from 1976 to about 1980. So I uh, traveled around on a little tour and uh, exhibited photos and uh, did talks in each of the uh, four cities that I went to, and one of them was Vancouver. Um, Then I carried on to uh, Seattle and Portland and then ended up in Calgary. The slideshows are amazing, Don. I love the little tidbits of information that you parlay to the people. And one of the things that's sort of vaguely associated with the slideshows <clears throat> is a little <clears throat> information, and I'm going <clears throat> about the vile tones that was provided via a little radio documentary, a vague radio documentary. That's what we heard off the top there. What was going on there exactly in that radio documentary? We're going to hear a bit more at the end of the Nardwar Human Survey Radio Show. In case people are wondering, what did we hear there to begin with? Well, the, uh, the, uh, there was a, a limited edition of the book of, the, of 250 copies that came with a 7-inch single. And the 7-inch has uh, two audio pieces on it. You know, in, in the book, I have a lot of like flyers, reproductions of flyers and badges and set lists and stuff like that, like all the kind of like the visual stuff that aesthetically, you know, totally connects to the music, aesthetically and literally. And um, these were two audio pieces that, uh, to me, were kind of like, um, you know, like a flyer or a badge, that they were like very much like, you know, sort of uh, time pieces of, of that moment. Um, the thing that you just heard was from a local radio station doing a profile on uh, Punk in Toronto where they went to a Vile Tone show. And, you know, as you can hear, it's, like, totally ridiculous because the guy doing the interview sounds like a moron and everybody who he interviews, you know, is, is articulate and, um, and you know, funny and interesting. Um, so it was very, like, typical of, of uh, particularly mainstream radio, but um, of kind of uh, the world in general's attitude towards punk to be just, like, you know, dismissive of it or think of it as, like, you know, stupid or... or or, you know, totally simplistic and incorrect view of what it was. So, yeah, one of the things is that radio documentary, which I recorded off the radio in, like, you know, 1977 or 78, um, my <laughs> little webcore tape recorder. And the other thing is a, uh, a, uh, a recording of the audience that I recorded out of my album show at... Um, the Hotel Isabella here in Toronto. Uh, I took my tape recorder and recorded um, two of their sets one night. So uh, what's on the uh, thing is like kind of like the pre, just before their second set, like the sound of like the audience and them kind of like warming up. And, you know, you hear them interacting with the audience and someone starts fighting with someone in the audience and <coughs> you hear a fight break up and, you know, chairs flying and stuff like that. So... Rather than put, like, you know, a piece of their music on the record, I wanted something that was, like, you know, that you could hear the air. You could hear, you know, the sound of, of, of what 
what that space and atmosphere felt like, you know. Don Pyle, Toronto Punk, and we're speaking here to Don Pyle, author of Trouble at the Camera Club, and that's the Earl that people can check out your book at, too, right? <coughs> yeah, TroubleInTheCameraClub.com. Dot com. I was wondering about rare Toronto punk, the rarest Toronto punk. What don't you have? I was going to list a few things and just wondering if you have it and what can you tell the people about it. The hate. There's something with like a Pierre Trudeau poster now. <laughs> Who are the hate and the Pierre Trudeau poster? Well, the hate were a band that they probably only played like two or three shows. And um, one of the guitar players from the hate keeps writing to me and... Um, you know, because I wrote a flyer about them, um, he's like, you know, sending me recordings of, of new music that he's doing and saying that the hate are going to reunite. I, if the hate reunite, it's definitely not going to be the real hate. Well, people in the band, the guy who's contacted him, because the two in the band were the bass player who everyone knew as Mr. Shit, this guy named Randy. Yeah, it's his name kind of <laughs> on the scene. And another guy named Angie, I think he called himself Angie Ignorant, and one who was like this, you know, like a lot of the the early shows, you know, there were a lot of kind of like misfit sort of oddball people, and, and Angie was one of those people who just like was a little bit out of control too often, and um, would just do kind of anything. Like, you know, he would tell us about this restaurant job that he had, that he'd like, you know, piss into the, the soup when he was making it, and and all that stuff. Um, so Angie was the singer in the band, and Mr. Shit was the bass player, and they wanted to be, like, you know, the most offensive band ever. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> that's that's a pretty big order these days, for sure, because, you know, they've been topped so many times that uh, what they did, you know, sounds just, like, totally, like, cute and sweet. Like, uh, Angie... Uh, I remember they played at this one place called The Turning Point. That's the only time I ever saw them, was playing twice at The Turning Point. And The Turning Point had this, like, you know, stage that was, like, about up to, like, waist height, kind of like the high high waist, and in sort of like a T-shape with this sort of, like, uh, with, you know, the, uh, uh, the uh, leg of the T sort of sticking out into the audience, sort of like a runway. And she came out with a... Uh, big poster of Pierre Trudeau uh, in front of him, and he had a hole torn in where Pierre's mouth was uh, with his dick sticking through it and came up to the edge of the stage and pissed out everybody who was, like, within reach. Of course, everybody leapt back. And they were a band that were, like, you know, as far as, like, music, totally unmemorable. I couldn't even tell you anything about, like, you know, one of their song titles or anything, but... They were just, like, so fucking obnoxious that I, uh, you know, was totally thought they were, you know, exciting. And um, so there's a flyer in the book for uh, 45 that they were allegedly going to do. And um, I asked the, uh, the guy from the band who contacted me if that record ever happened because it's kind of like I've had so many people ask me, like, you know, all the, the rabid sort of punk collectors, as soon as they saw that flyer, were, like, contacting me, like, oh, my God, do you have that record? Where do you find that record? Like, you know, have you seen it? So it's this sort of mythological thing. I don't think that there's actually a record. The guy from the band said that they did test pressings, but I don't even know if it went that far. But um, um, <laughs> if it did, I'm sure it's going to come out because... Everything <laughs> has 
eventually found its way out uh, somehow. And um, a couple of people were like, you know, when I told them that apparently I, a master tape exists, they were kind of uh, hot on the trail to try and acquire it. So um, who knows? One day maybe that hate record really will come out. There are so many Toronto punk records that I didn't know about. And another one I want to ask you about was The Rage. Do you know the band The Rage? And was there a picture sleeve with it? The Rage. Uh, weren't they like Ottawa or something? I don't remember them being from Toronto. There was a Toronto band called The Rage, and they sort of had a great sort of like punk mod mover, The Rage. Hmm. I don't remember them. How about The Pelicans? The Pelicans? Or the pedestrians. Oh God, I don't know any of those bands. How about the fictions? Well, I remember the fictions, just sort of vaguely. These were all bands that were sort of, I think, kind of like probably like sort of later. Like when I say later, I mean like seventy nine, eighty, like maybe into the eighties even. Um, the Rage single, by the way, was on Rage Records, and it's "I've Got Your Number" backed with "Stay," and it came out in nineteen eighty one. Yeah. No, I don't even know that one. How about The Way Outs? You know The Way Outs, don't you? I do know The Way Outs, because I, uh, well, I saw them a bunch of times, and the band that, uh, the two bands that uh, two of the guys from The Way Outs, you know, had before uh, The Way Outs played with the band that I had, uh, Crash Kills 5, they had a band called The Movers, and so Jerry, uh, a.k.a. Johnny Bubblegum, who uh, went on to be in Tyranna, Actually, I think it was after Tyranna. Yeah, it was after Tyranna. Uh, so he was in that band, and another guy named Mike Andrachuk, who was in, um, you know, lots of local bands. He's, he's in a band now called um, Miracle Whip. Uh, and, uh, of course, Cleve Anderson, who's, you know, been in and is still in almost every single band ever. Um, you know, he was in Battered Wives at the time and Blue Rodeo and he was in Tyranna and et cetera, et cetera, and still plays with uh, various people, including the Scrooge that are, you know, uh, kind of like a sort of a punk karaoke band here. The Way Out 7-Inch, do you have it? Oh, yes, I do. How about the Doppler Brothers, the Suspects, or the Androids? I don't think the Androids had a record either. Uh, the, the first two bands, uh, again, those are bands I've never even heard of. The Androids were, uh, they were one of the very sort of like first of the, the first batch of bands. And um, as far as I know, they never made a record. Um, but they were, um, the singer of the band was um, this woman, Sally, Sally Cato, who moved to New York and sang in a band called Smash Gladys, this kind of metal band that were, uh, uh, had some sort of notoriety. And um, <laughs> the drummer of that band was uh, David uh, Quinton slash Steinberg, who, um, again, was a drummer, played with lots of people. He, uh, he played, um, he had his own record out on Bomb Records and played with Steve Baders and... Um, yeah, really excellent sort of Keith Moon influenced drummer. So uh, yeah, they were you know around for a while. You know, a pretty kind of not one of the best bands from that period, but still you know there were so few at that time that they were still cool to see. 
Apparently, they did have a 7-inch, though, the Android's Roller Derby Queen over and over on the Android record label pressed at World Records that came out in 1979. Wow. Well, I would like to find that one. So that is missing from your collection, then? That is definitely missing from my collection. How about Platinum Blonde? Is that missing from your collection? Because they, well, they have a rare punk record, and are they punk? Maybe you could tell people about Platinum <laughs> Blonde. Uh, I don't need to tell people about Platinum Blonde. Everyone knows about Platinum Blonde. Just go to YouTube and Google, what is it, Standing in the Dark, and you will know everything you need to know about Platinum Blonde. Uh <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I've heard that that record was a, was sort of like a punk band, but when they started, they were totally like a, a police cover band. They were already like, you know, a sort of, uh, I don't know what you'd call that, third wave or something, like, you know, a shitty bar band covering a shitty British band. So it was like they were already awful, even at their best. Um, and I've heard a lot of people say that that, that first single is really good, but I'm... And there's certain things that I'm, like, pre-biased about that I just, like, I don't even want to, I do not want to listen to Stephen Harper sing Guns N' Roses. I do not want to hear the first Platinum Blonde record, no matter how good it is. How about The Swindle? And we're here with Don Pyle, author of Trouble at the Camera Club, live here on the Nardwarda Human Serviette Radio Show, talking about <laughs> Toronto punk rock, Toronto obscurities. Toronto. You are a Toronto expert, aren't you, Don? <laughs> well, I, I don't know if I would call myself a Toronto expert, but all the bands that you're asking about, these are all the bands that like were kind of like, those are all the rarities now because they're the ones that nobody bought. Or, you know, it's really interesting now seeing, like, the bands that that so many people people were, like, sort of, like, dismissive of at the time that, because there were just so many other better bands around. You know, there were so many good bands that, um, you know, there was this kind of, like, uh, all the ones that you're talking about are ones that I think of as being sort of, like, you know, after things were really sort of, like, interesting. Um, How about the Swindled? Who Wants Guns, hymn number 84 from 1982. That's swindled. No, I don't have that one either. <laughs> Jan Houst, he owned the Dylan basement tapes. Like Jan Houst, he did the other people's music record label, and he owned the Dylan basement tapes? Well, I've heard that. I mean, you know, own is a... Uh, can be uh, interpreted pretty broadly, <laughs> If you have possession of something, I don't know if that necessarily means that you own it, but I know that he has possession of many, many people's master tapes, including the Crash Kills 5 master tapes. Uh, so, uh, yeah, you know, some... Can you get them back from him? How did he get them? He... Through some kind of uh, dubious double talk, which I can't... Um, you know, uh, replicate exactly what words were said because it was uh, it transpired between him and Reed Diamond, uh, who is no longer alive, uh, that Reed had the master tapes and Young borrowed them from him to examine them for consideration for release and uh, never return them. And he has a lot of people's uh, tapes. Uh, that he's acquired in, in that way. And, um, um, you know, he's, 
he's done some great archiving. Uh, him and uh, his partner in other people's music, they've put out some really fantastic collections. And, um, you know, Jan has uh, told me that, you know, he did some things that he's uh, not proud of and that he did, you know, some... Some <laughs> some behavior that was uh, caused by uh, certain substances, uh, but um, you know I don't uh, know exact details of that, so I'm uh, being a little bit sketchy about this. But you know he uh, he has a lot of tapes. He's he's a real collector of stuff. He's a, a you know a specialist on the band. He um, had tapes of uh, the band that um, people in the band had didn't know existed um, or, you know, had never owned. Don Pyle, author of Trouble. Is Trouble in or Trouble at the Camera Club? Trouble in the Camera Club. And Trouble, trouble at the Camera Club. is Why wasn't Trouble at the Camera Club? Uh, I don't know. I guess because maybe I was thinking big trouble in little China, and just that flow of words seemed to make sense to me. I don't know. Thank you for all this punk knowledge via Toronto. Well, if anybody, I'm pretty I'm striking out here. I'm, no, no, you are. No, 604-822-2487, 604-UBC-CITR. If anybody has any questions for Don Pyle, he can also tweet me. At Nardwar, N-A-R-D-W-U-A-R. The Violetones from Toronto, their second label, or I think it was their second label, Montreco. What can you say about that? That is an amazing label with the neat picture sleeves that they have that has like a razor blade on it. I know, those are the best, how huh, with a big like safety pin through them. The uh, Montreco was, uh, you know, the, the Violetones single came out on their own label, the... Um, Actually, I don't think it was their own label. The second, the second single came out on like Razor Records, and I think it was a label that was owned by Roger Maines from the Ugly Ducklings. Uh, there was some kind of connection to the Ugly Ducklings and Roger with that uh, record, and the Matrico licensed it uh, not long after that. Oh wait, wasn't it the first? What did they put out? No, they put out, Montreco did the first Violetone single, didn't they? The Screaming Fist single, didn't they? The Violetones, the Violetones came out on Vile Records in 77, and then Look Back in Angler, Anger came out on Razor in 78, so it must have been the reissue then. Yeah, so the Montreco thing was a 12-inch of, I think it's just the first single, the, the, the Screaming Fist uh, single. I've never owned that because, you know, I already had the 7-inch. There was no reason to buy it but other than, you know, it's louder and it's got that cute <laughs> punk rock sleeve with a safety pin through it and a razor blade. And, you know, so they, they were in Montreal sort of like, uh, you know, I've heard that they were like sort of mafia sort of disco connection. I think Montreal actually, like, you know, was doing some, like, disco stuff before they did this like selection of like uh just a, a handful of weird records like they actually did a venus and the razor blades record you know the kim fowley band um and uh, the violetone single and then there was um i think they did a single by the action who were either from 
Ottawa or Montreal. Was it the action that you asked me about at the beginning? No, but the action were from Ottawa, yes. Yeah, yeah. So they did an action signal and uh, and uh, a couple of other things. But I remember that those things all came out like around the same time in those sort of like generic, you know, punk sleeves and including that great uh, uh, <laughs> the Razor Blade song Punkorama. Do you remember that one? This is Punk-O-Rama. <laughs> and we're speaking here to Don Pyle. And Don Pyle from Toronto, Ontario. Toronto is not too far from Europe, a lot closer to Europe than Vancouver. And I noticed that some Toronto punk ended up on European labels. Like, for instance, Teenage Head had a German release for Tearing Me Apart. The Diodes LP was released in the Netherlands. And the Diodes LP was on 8-track and is selling right now on eBay for 200 bucks. if you want the 8-track of the Diodes LP from 1977. The Battered Wives LP ended in the Netherlands and Germany as well. Do you have these? The European issues of Toronto Punk? Was that all the Toronto Punk that got out there to Europe in the very early days? Oh, God, I don't know that any of those things uh, came out in other countries. You know, like when uh, the Diode signed the CBS, they were signed by the Canadian label, but they were signed like CBS worldwide, so it was up to any territory to, you know, pick it up if they wanted to release it, but I didn't know that any of those bands had uh, actually had releases overseas, uh, so... No, I didn't know that any of those. You know, all the ones that I'm aware of are kind of things that have happened more recently, like, you know, that Diodes Live at the Alma Combo thing came out on Italian label Rave Up, you know, a few years ago, and <clears throat> more like reissue things. I didn't know that any of those bands got battered wives and... Battered any- wives in Netherlands and Germany, the Diodes in the Netherlands, and the Teenage Head, a 7-inch on a German label for tearing me apart. And we have a caller now. Caller, go ahead to Don Pyle. Go ahead, caller. Yes, hello. I've been enjoying your show. So far in speaking, I feel real nostalgic for the time and era that you are discussing. Yeah, much so. I'm going to have to start weeping if I don't make the call. My question is, uh, there's this discussion of Rob Ford, the mayor of Toronto. He was in some sort of band or some sort of early pre-sort of desperately industrial band, he and his brother started, and then this bit, is there truth to this rumor? And I'll take my question off the air. Thank oh, no, you. call her. Do-do-loot-do. Oh, do-do-loot. Did you get that at all, Don Pyle? I couldn't really understand what he was saying. The caller was wondering about the early exploits of Rob Ford and if him and his brother were in a punk band. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> If if they were <laughs> if they were in a punk band, it was probably one of those ones that you that you <laughs> listed earlier. That you know the, the sort of nineteen eighty two ones. By the time it reached, you know the sort of uh, the suburban sort of when suburban jocks were doing punk bands, you know. So those guys were suburban jocks at that time. So I have never heard that they had a punk band. I, those guys are too conservative. Although you never know, lots of punks I know turned in to be very conservative. Don Pyle, cheap trick at Maple Leaf Gardens. You had no trouble to bring in your camera for that. Um, the photos that I have are from Massey Hall, not from Maple Leaf Gardens. Oh, okay. I thought it would have been a trouble even to get in there with the camera. No, you know, for it wasn't really until. Um, 
you know, the 80s that uh, that cameras started, like, not being allowed. I mean, there was, there was never, ever an issue before that, like, you know, of taking cameras in. But, you know, as time has gone by, like, you know, now it's like, you know, you have to go through, oh, my God, when Cat Stevens was just here, you had to go through a body scanner. Uh, so, you know, security gets tighter and tighter at shows, and they're more and more strict about various things, and cameras are uh, mostly not allowed. Although, you know, how do they stop people now? Now everybody's videotaping everything on their phones. So there was a rule that has <laughs> sort of gone the way of, uh, uh, well, fallen by the wayside as technology sort of caught up to things to sort of make that irrelevant. You couldn't take cameras into shows. But, um, yeah, I remember it was like sometime in the 80s when it, they started. I remember the first time, actually, that I went to, it was Massey Hall, where I had my camera confiscated at the door when they had, like, instated this rule that you couldn't take photographs there. And So, you know, they took my camera and checked it, and I couldn't get it back until the end of the show. Don Pyle, the 1960s scene... Did the Ugly Ducklings get the respect they deserve? Because you mentioned there, Roger Main was sort of involved with the second Violetones EP. Nazi Dog, I think, was in bands, you know, pre-Violetones. And on that CBC documentary, the Violetones are quoted as saying, you know, they love Tommy James and the Shondells. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, well, the, Vi- the Ugly Ducklings started playing shows again. I think that they had, I'm not sure if they had stopped or if they had just kind of like, sort of fallen out of sort of general public interest. But I remember uh, them playing shows at the Horseshoe, uh, shows booked by Gary Topp, and uh, and at the Edge, 70s, uh, 80s. So um, in Toronto, for sure, like, you know, there was a, a real interest. Gas couple of bands, and, um, uh, you know, they were certainly a point of end of uh, 60s sort of, like, you know, garage or sort of psychedelic bands that... Uh, you know, punk rock parties um, were certainly like one of the bands that people were uh, were were pretty, you know, widely known. Every, a lot of people knew, them, appreciated them. They were, um, you know, pretty respected. Do you have their LP? Um, I have uh, just the uh, the one LP, not not the uh, later ones, the the first one. The Trogs and Violetones also did a gig together, and the Trogs looked so punk. I know. I mean, <laughs> of course, like, you know, the Trogs. I mean, the Violetones were playing Trog songs. There were so many people were playing Trog songs. They were, again, like one of the, the great bands that, um, you know, I don't know, like so much, like, you know, punk stuff. Like, you know, you look at that early stuff that came out, like um, that um, Live at CBGB's album or the Max's Kansas City album, and it's all just sort of like 60s sort of like garage bands, you know, they and that was kind of like what so much punk was to begin with. It was like, you know, oh, you know, I'm into the Trogs, so I'm going to play songs that sound like the Trogs. I mean, you hear the Fast, and they, they sort of sound like the Trogs. Um, you know, they were definitely a band that were, you know, one of the big influences on, on um, you know, so many of the, the earliest punk bands. How big did the Violetones think they could be? <laughs> <laughs> you know that's such a a, a funny question to even like consider an answer to uh, <laughs> because.
because I think it was kind of like uh, there are uh, so many contradictions with them. There's so many kind of uh, counters to to every sort of like you know claim they make or dream they had, where it was like you know the Vialtrons. Who knows? They could have been huge or maybe they were just destined to have the place they they uh, they have now but they were a band i think with like really big ambitions but you know had too many other things that were more important that got in the way of all those things and um i don't know have you seen that last pogo jumps again film i've seen bits of it yeah, I mean it's it's a brilliant film. If anyone is interested in in that period, regardless, you know whether whether you're interested in Toronto or not, like you know, I've seen documentaries from lots of different um, punk scenes around the world, and uh, the the one that Colin Brunton made about Toronto is easily one of the best, if not the best. It's such a good film. It. Uh, it's so thorough in covering like all of the Toronto bands that begin with, but also kind of like you know documents, uh, you know, quite accurately from what my experience was because it was all the same things that I was into and all the same places I was going to um, from before you know punk rock happened, like you know coming out of rep theaters and and sort of like you know garage rock. Um, um, anyway, in that. Uh, I'm sorry, I forgot what your question was because there was something that... Uh, it was how that. big do you think the Vile Tunes could be? And yes, that movie is totally amazing. Yeah. Um, it's sort of like a, a, a central part. The Vile Tunes are definitely a central part of that, that film. And, um, you know, it's outlined like pretty much, you know, why they just like could never make it. And... Um, you know, drugs and alcohol are, are named, but insecurity is another one that is really kind of pointed at. And, you know, with um, there was a lot of, like, destructiveness when the Vile Tones had, like, some kind of break. You know, they would do something to kind of, like, basically undo that. And, you know, Lecky claims to have done a lot of that with intention to sort of maintain their, I don't even know really, you know, for me to even say what it is they were trying to maintain, I don't know, because I I think really it's kind of like revisionist. I think it was just like very self-destructive and insecure and that, you know, as far as like how far they could have, gone could they have been as big as the sex pistols no because they just couldn't have been the same cultural phenomenon that the sex pistols were you know like the sex pistols had such a huge like social impact on uh on britain and um and you know a major label behind them and you know a major studio production and you know the outrage of of the general population and and some fantastic songs. So, you know, I um, there's a tape that actually just got released online that um, I downloaded uh, MP3 of um, last week of the Vile Tone set from playing 
at uh, CBGB's in 1977. And when I listened to it, I thought, you know, their playing is bad. Their songs are, you know, pretty pedestrian. And, you know, it sounds, it sounds harsh for me to even say that because, you know, I was a huge Violphones fan and thought their songs were great and thought the whole experience of seeing them it was great. But like so many things, it's great in context of the moment. You know, like there are so many records that I have that sometimes when I'm listening to them, I think like, okay, if I were playing this for someone who was 19 years old now, would this New York Dolls record sound good to them? And for the most part, a lot of records, I think, no, this would not sound good to them because the context is not there. You know, it's like they're hearing this now filtered through 30-plus years of, uh, you know, all the things that have come since then and changes in production and changes in, you know, attitude and, you know, that they have no sense of, like, you know, you can't hear this as, like, you can't hear that they are the first band wearing, you know, women's clothes on the record, you know, on the, the recordings. You can't hear, um, you know, the sensationalism that uh, that they caused or kind of the air around them. You know, you can't hear those things on, on a record so much. So, you know, the Violetones are sort of one of those bands where it's just on record they're, or on the recordings, their songs are, you know, not that great. They were, I, I don't know if they could have been huge. If they had been huge, it had to have happened at that moment, you know. it. Uh, they had a moment for it to happen and and lost that moment. And unfortunately, that happened with so many bands. God, like Teenage Head. Like, I mean, their story is so sad. Like, you know, because Teenage Head were a band that, even though of all the bands from that scene, they were the ones who were the biggest selling and who actually had, like, you know, radio play and everything. I remember, like, you know, they were going down to New York to do this big showcase for for American labels, and Gord Lewis broke his back. You know, they had an accident, and Gord broke his back. And I remember they had, like, um, David Bendith playing with them for a while, and that just, like, was so wrong. Like, David Bendith was someone who just did not fit into kind of... Well, his nickname was David Band Death. <laughs> I've never heard that one before. But, you know, he was like sort of like part of the establishment already, and he was like, there was nothing like new and exciting about him like there was with Teenage Head. And, you know, who knows, if they had gone down there and been signed, their whole fate could have been different, but... That, you know, they had David Bendith fill in, who was not, you know, not even a fraction of uh, as charismatic as Gord Lewis, you know, and Teenage Head actually had great songs, so, you know, they could have been a big band, you know, they, they should have been more popular, you know, all over the place, but, you know, the bands that were really good are, are certainly, like, getting their due. I mean, it was all kinds of collectible stuff, but... You know, obviously collectible doesn't, you know, equate that it's a fantastic record. It just means it's desirable. But, you know, all over the world, you know, I, I, I see bands covering Teenage Head songs. You know, uh, just a couple months ago I was watching, a friend sent me a link to uh, a band in Japan that were 
doing them, and of course, you know, Needles Pins did a 45 of uh, Picture My Face, and and you know, lots of people have done Teenage Head songs. They're you know, they were they were certainly like one of one of the bands that were really great uh, from that time. And we're speaking here to Don Pyle, author of Trouble in the Camera Club, an amazing collection of punk rock photos, and also, Don, from Shadowy Men on a Shadowy Planet. And I love this gig that happened way back when, your band, Shadowy Men and a, in a Shadowy Planet from a Shadowy Planet versus the Melvins, the Shadowy Men Melvins gig. <laughs> The lightest band in the world versus the heaviest band in the world. Wasn't that the subtitle for the battle? Uh, I don't think so. We were in, uh, in Olympia, Washington, which is the home of the Fleetwoods. And I would say the Fleetwoods have beat us hands down for the lightest band in the world. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, that was certainly like, you know, at that time, I'd never heard, even, I'd never heard the Melvins. You know, I, I kind of like, you know, knew who they were and uh, that, but... Um, there we were playing together in Olympia, Washington. What do you remember about that gig? Was it light versus heavy? Um, no, it didn't feel that way. It felt like everything was kind of like light, or I wouldn't say light. I mean, it was just like a day of kind of like rock music. It was like, you know, an afternoon in the park, um, you know, next to a lake at the bottom of uh, the Capitol Hill there in, in downtown Olympia. Uh, we were playing at the International Pop Underground Festival, which was um, one of the very few festival situations that we played at, but, you know, totally unlike any anything that uh, is packaged as a, a festival, um, you know, on kind of a larger scale now. Um, it was, you know, a five-day thing put on by uh, uh, K Records, and um, we kind of developed, uh, you know, we we ended up having all these, like, you know, Shadowy Men had these, like, friendships in different places uh, in the States, the Pacific Northwest uh, particularly, and uh, Chicago, and we just somehow connected with bands and people in those areas and um, um, in you know Pacific Northwest uh, Beat Happening and Girl Trouble were two of the bands that we became really good friends with and that we played lots of shows with and so um, Kay you know put out one of the Shadowy Men singles and uh, invited us to come out and play at that uh, festival and um uh, the very first time, actually, that we went out west, we went and played Olympia. It was like this very kind of like weird coincidence where I had um, read a review in a magazine for a Beat Happening record. It was their second album. And um, I was in Ann Arbor and saw it in the store and bought it. And when I got home from Ann Arbor, there was a letter addressed to Shadowy Men from Calvin Johnson saying, you know, Hey, you know, I'm I have this band, and you know, we should do some shows together, and I think you're really great and everything. So, Calvin wrote to me as I was buying a Beat Happening album. So, uh, yeah, so we we went out there and played at that thing, and um, 
what I remember most about about that show was uh, was our set and some of the various people that were there and just like what fun it was. I mean, the whole festival was fantastic. But you know, we arrived there with no equipment because you know we were we didn't have permits or anything like that. And Calvin was totally like, yeah, 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 we'll get equipment for you, no problem. Just you know, don't worry about it. And as is sort of <laughs> the way. Calvin does things. It's like you know, we get there. It's like, okay, where's the equipment? Oh, uh, oh, well, okay. Let me see what I can do. So at showtime, like you know, I still didn't have a drum kit, and I remember like you know, kind of standing there waiting to play and being sort of uptight about <laughs> not having a drum kit to play on, and seeing kind of like two blocks away, seeing someone like coming down the street with a bass drum over their head and then like making their way through the crowd at the show and then sort of plonking it on the stage. And um, it was, um, I forget what her name is, it was Toby Vale, the drummer in Bratmobile, but it was Bratmobile loaned me their drum kit. And I remember that it was like a broken drum kit and that it just kept falling apart while I was playing. Legs were falling off of it. The bass drum was rolling away. And so these various people that were in the audience were, you know, kind of like coming up on stage and reaching up on stage and kind of like helping, like, put the kit back together or fix the legs or whatever as we were playing. And um, a lot of those people are people that we ended up, like, you know, being friends with. So it was like people from Girl Trouble and the Fastbacks and Young Fresh Fellows. Um, you know, other bands that we, you know, became friends with and played lots of shows with. So it was, um, I mean, the whole experience of going to play at that International Pop Underground Festival was just quite amazing. I mean, you know, as, as far as like a model for like a great label and a great event and creating like, you know, community spirit and creating an event that was like just completely like, powerful musically and exciting musically and socially just like seeing like you know what could happen when you know everybody who's sort of like-minded and there's no troublemakers and everybody's sort of you know pulling together to work the door or you know work the coat check or everything when everybody worked together how what an incredible event you could put on and and that was, you know, what the IPU was, was like. So our, our whole time there was, like, totally colored by the whole week, not just our own show. But uh, the Melvins were certainly, uh, <clears throat> they were, like, one of the sort of, like, the least memorable parts of that week for me. I mean, you know, seeing the Fastbacks and the Mummies and uh, and Girl Trouble and the Headcoats and, uh, um, you know, uh, the Pastels and Jad Fair and you know the Spinanes. Seeing all those bands was was more exciting to me than seeing the Melvins. I was fairly indifferent to the Melvins. How did that differ, Don Pyle? We're speaking to Don Pyle from Shadowy Man on the Shadowy Planet. How did that differ from playing with Dick Dale? Didn't you play with Dick Dale? Uh, no, no, we never did. Did you ever see Dick Dale? Yeah, I did see him here. Yeah. Who played with Dick Dale? Um, I've forgotten, but I did know. I guess I was just curious if every time kind of a surfish band, I know you didn't always like that term, surfish band, came through Toronto if you got the call to open. 
Um, not really, no, no. You know, and as far as like not liking the term, I kind of feel like the whole sort of like we're not a surf band thing, like even calling that song we're not a fucking, we did a song that we're called we're not a fucking surf band. I mean, there were so many ways that we knew that we were like, you know, totally like had big elements of surf music, but it was more kind of like a response to kind of like just so many people writing about us and, you know, the thing that's just goes on and on and on where like, you know, one person writes one thing and then everybody, everybody, all the other, you know, writers who read that article kind of like regurgitate in the same language, you know, so being in a band is a real sort of like education in, in sort of like, you know, media repetition and how, how just feeding information to, to media kind of creates truthfulness into us of a story and how uh just saying something like you know we kind of like almost like deliberately said we're not a fucking surf band for people to say that you know to say that we're not a surf band even though we totally knew in ourselves that we in many ways were but if people uh, saw you live they would be blown away, and they still are blown away, like when I saw you in Calgary a couple of years back, by 16 encores. It was like, you got an encore, so you guys played 16 <laughs> encores. Shadowy Men on a Shadowy Planet, speaking to Don Pyle from Shadowy Men on a Shadowy Planet, author also of Trouble in the Camera Club. You did 16 encores. What was the genesis of that? It's like, okay, time to do an encore. You actually did 16 encores, like 16 different tunes. And what songs have been in the encores over the years, and whose idea was it to do Delight. <laughs> Whose idea? Well, I know for sure that Delight was my idea, and that Reed didn't know the song. Which we were just like, "Are you kidding?" He's like, "No, I've, I've never even heard this before." I was like, "Oh my god, how did you how did you miss that?" And I remember the first time that we put the grooves in the the heart riff into that thing, like what a response, like, you know, that riff got from people. Maybe I you could just set up, looking at me. Maybe you could just set up people, what was that thing? For case people are wondering, what that, what was that thing? Can you give some background on the 16 encores? What, it is, what is it exactly? Well, You're set in. if you were making a soup that had three ingredients, and then that you thought, oh, the soup isn't stupid enough, and you just kept adding more and more ingredients <laughs> until... Well, you had the stupidest soup of all. Uh, that's what that song was, where we just, like, uh, we started with, I think, probably 16 classic rock, just like the riffs, just like, just the hook, just like, eliminate the entire song, distill it down to the hook, that song. And we strung them together and kept adding to it. And the thing just to portion so that the song ended up being like 10 minutes long. <laughs> we did it. We, over the years, we had done at different times medleys of things for various things. The radio uh, program, the <clears throat> Brave New Waves commissioned us to do a Christmas program, and so we did kind of like this, all these like Christmas songs that we did a medley of, and uh, a few different times we did medleys for like dumb reasons and so because we'd done it before 
it well, it started off as something that we did for ourselves uh, uh, that we never ever like thought would like leave the rehearsal space, and then we ended up playing it once, and you know people just went crazy. So uh, we would do it once in a while, but we uh, <laughs> we dragged it out for the uh, the the shows that we've uh, done in the past couple of years. And we've, done it a few times was that pretty hard to relearn um yeah <laughs> it was it's a lot of uh, it's a lot of brain power and uh we've added a few things since then we've added teenage head into it now uh so uh yeah it's a little bit hard to keep track of but it's like you know at this point it's kind of like I think we're all kind of feeling like it's a bit like a, a stand-up routine that you know you got to retire. You got to retire it and uh, you know move on. So, and we're speaking here to Don Powell from Shadowy Men on a Shadowy Planet, live on the Nardwarda Human Serviette Radio Show. Any questions for Don? 604-822-2487, 604-UBC-CITR. You can also tweet at Nardwar, N-E-R-D-W-U-A-R. For shadowy men on a shadowy planet, royalty checks. How have those been with kids in the hall having such long-standing success across the world? Because, of course, you did the theme song, having an average weekend. How have the royalty checks been from other countries? <laughs> Can you tell how popular kids in the hall is across other nations? Uh, well, I would say that they're not so popular across other nations. We get like, you know, 37 cents from Greece and, you know, 18 cents from Turkey and <laughs> those kinds of things show up on our royalty checks. So you see where it gets shown, which is like, you know, it's like quite astounding. It's been like, you know, all over the world. But uh, um, I don't know how they calculate royalties in some of those places, but... Um, <laughs> so the royalties are pretty ridiculously low. It's cool uh, you made it to Greece, though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, and they were actually like translating the shows. Imagine seeing that like with dubbing. I mean, that would be. I'd love to see that series dubbed. Well, never mind. Never mind the English one. That's uh, well. For instance, anal probing aliens was one of the skits on Kids in the Hall. Do you remember anal probing aliens? No, I don't remember that one. Were there any special fun ones that you really enjoyed from Kids in the Hall? Well, um, I always very much enjoyed uh, uh, the buddy skits um, and um, the uh, Incubus and Hecubus, the uh, the um, I guess what would you call them the the representatives of hell that uh, Kevin McDonald and uh, Dave Foley played. Uh, Kevin was was so often like the most fun for us to watch because probably because he was like, you know, the most sort of like insecure. He didn't like, you know, always sort of believe that he was like, you know, really funny or great or anything. He would be like, you know, 
that okay? You know, how was that? You know, was that good? And, of course, that makes them, like, totally endearing because the others, you know, had much more sort of, like, confidence in their, in, you know, what it was that they were putting out. And, you know, they were all doing very funny stuff, but um, it was always really funny watching Kevin. I mean, you know, so many of the skits, like, <coughs> I don't know if I could pick a favorite skit. And, like, people ask me about various skits on the show, and... You know, we saw every single skit, you know, as it was performed, because we played at all the uh, studio audiences, you know, we played to all, at all the tapings. So we saw, like, some of those skits, like, done, like, you know, six times, eight times, um, and then, you know, the video stuff they would, like, show to the audience um, and, uh, you know, get a uh, response from them, record the applause and the laughter and everything. But we were in a position in the studio where it was really difficult to see a lot of the stuff, so or else we'd have to be like you know talking to producers while the the skit was going on, or we'd be you know being given instructions and stuff like that. So um, even though I saw everything while it was happening, I've never actually seen everything on the TV show. Um, there's a lot of kids in the hall that I've never seen on television. We do have a tweet question for you, Don Pyle, from John Cars, and he wonders, did Royal Crowns open for Dick Dale at the Horseshoe? Oh, I think that Royal Crowns might have been his band, but it's quite possible that they played with them. I mean, you know, I saw the Royal Crowns, I don't remember if they were with, like, Link Ray last time he was here. I mean, the Royal Crowns are a band that, you know, have backed a few different people up, and uh, I don't know if Dick Dale came with, like, a pickup band, or um, or if uh, or if he had his own Oh, was it I was going to say, was it Agent Orange? Were they his band? I think he had his own band with him because he sort of had a revival going in the early 90s. So he had his own band going. So I guess what I meant, back him up, I meant being like the opening band. The opening band, band. yeah. No, God, you know, I've seen so many shows. I don't remember who was opening for, for all the shows. Well, thank you anyways, John Cars, for that tweet question to Don Pyle, author of Trouble in the Camera Club and also from Shadowy Men on a Shadowy Planet. Now, that was mentioned right there, if I'm looking at the tweet, the place known as the Horseshoe Tavern. But I was wondering, another venue, Larry's Hideaway, I learned that Slayer learned to hot knife at Larry's Hideaway. <laughs> Did you do any hot knifing at Larry's Hideaway? What was it like playing Larry's Hideaway in Toronto? No, actually, I've probably only done hot knives like three times in my life, and none of them were at Larry's Hideaway. Um, Larry's Hideaway was a dump. You know, it, there's a lot of kind of like romanticism about that place, but it was, um, you know, it was a kind of like a flophouse sort of hotel. It was filled with cockroaches, and you know, quite run down, but it was also sort of a neat building, you know, in, in, in a neat place, you know, it was a, this hotel that was like basically in a park. Um, the block where it is, there's a, you know, a church, and then Mary's Hideaway was there in this, you know, park where Allen Gardens is. Um, 
and where the building used to be, you can still see like you know this rectangle of trees that uh, that uh, surrounded the place. So it's kind of like this ghost building there. Um, but you know, Larry's was um, one of the sort of like you know after punk started rolling, and you know it was one of the places that had like lots of different kinds of bands playing at it, and it was. You know, it was just sort of like one of those places that, um, you know, in in the search for new places to play, that Larry's, you know, became one of one of the places to play. And then Teenage Head's management were booking it for a while and calling it Headspace. And, um, you know, it was in a basement and low ceilings. And, you know, I certainly saw some fantastic shows there, but... It certainly was not one of my favorite places in town. But, like, Shadowy Men did one of our first shows there, opening for Husker Du. I saw Gary Glitter there, Wayne Kramer, um, Specimen, um, uh, Bauhaus, uh, um, the birth, not the birthday party, uh, um, the Bad Seeds, like, you know, one of the first times they played, The Gun Club. Um, you know, they had a lot of great stuff play there. But it was um, it was one of those places where, you know, it was like the people who worked there and the whole atmosphere, they were pretty disinterested in the place. It was just like a space, like one of the spaces that bands played at. There wasn't anything that was kind of, like, particularly great about that place. We have another tweet question for you, Don Pyle, from Heart Fan. And Heart Fan was wondering, do you know Arthur Fogel of Live Nation, who started in bands in Toronto in the 70s and now does like U2? Now does like U2? Like booking them? Yeah. Well, I've heard his name before. I've seen his name. You know, he's like, you know, one of the the music biz people who've been around forever, so I, I have no idea about him playing in bands, but, uh, you know, he's someone whose name I've seen in, in connection to uh, uh, music promotion for years and years and years. Did you ever see the Blues Brothers around? Because Dan Aykroyd liked the viol tones. I never saw, like, you know, you'd see Dan Aykroyd at the Horseshoe because, you know, he was involved somehow with the Horseshoe and with... Um, the guy who was uh, who was managing slash sort of oh, I think maybe owned the horseshoe. It was a guy named X Ray who ran another club down the street called X Rays as well. Um, so you'd see Dan Aykroyd out, and <clears throat> once in a while you'd see him at parties, and you know he was like <laughs> sort of known as someone you know who's like. Where's the party with the cocaine? That's where you'll find Dan Aykroyd. How about John Candy? I never saw John Candy out. Where can people see you in movies? Are you in the Crash and Burn movie? The Crash and Burn movie? I do not see myself in that film, no. How about The Last Pogo? Are you in the original Last Pogo? Um, no, I am not in the original Last Pogo. I was at the Last Pogo, you know, at at the show, the original Last Pogo. And it's funny because, like, you know, I see, like, you know, shots of the audience, and all, so many of the people that are at the front at the show there 
are people who came into the scene, particularly connected to the vile tones, uh, around well, you know that time, 1978. <clears throat> there were kind of like gangs coming into uh, uh, the punk scene, and you know these kind of people that were attracted to the scene because they wanted to be violent and they wanted to fight and they wanted to start fights. And I see a lot of those people in that film. And, it, you know, it really kind of leaves me with a bad taste because they were, um, you know, I see a lot of the people who, who really transformed the scene into something that was like, you know, so different and, um, you know, negative compared to um, how much, you know, fun and community-minded and cooperative and, um, and um, you know, there was a real feeling in, of unity, I think, amongst people and uh, kind of friendship and kinship for sure because it was a smaller group of people who were all kind of like into sort of like similar, some kind of like commonality thing that was much more about the music and about having, you know, uh, having fun or exploring new ideas. Um, things, things that were just like a lot more positive than wanting to go to a show to bust heads. So uh, the whole last pogo, the event, and that particular time, it was like, you know, it was a real, like, kind of, like, time when that scene was kind of like, you know, the, it was really like the original scene was over. And this was kind of like, you know, kind of the, a, a sort of like a whole different crop of people with a whole different idea. There were a lot of people that were coming who had sort of bought into the idea of what punk was that the media was presenting and that, you know, sort of more cartoonish figures like Sid Vicious were presenting, that it was that it was dumb or that it was, um, you know, violent. Um, so, you know, those, uh, you know, being dumb was certainly like part of some of the greatest, you know, punk records ever made, but there was also a real intelligence to uh, to so many things that came out of that movement that, um, um, you know, was sort of, I, I don't know, it was, it was a real time of, of change and where things were changing to included a lot of negative factors at that time. So the last Pogo event was something that was not, great to me you know like like you you know you look at that last pogo record and it's like you know the secrets weren't a very good band it was like they came out of this thing that was you know the diodes and the vile tones that were you know in many ways sort of conventional rock but they were also like you know really exploring new things and it was all very new feeling and then they started The Secrets, which was kind of like more sort of like good tiny rock and roll band. Uh, and it was like, it seemed like a real step back. And then the mods who were, you know, to call yourself after a movement that 
you know happened in Britain, you know, in the past is, uh, you know, they were very much kind of like a sort of conformist band, you know, like kind of, oh, we're going to be a mod band and call ourselves the mods in case people miss that. Um, and, you know, the vile tones, it was like a version of the vile tones that were, it was, you know, kind of a later version of the band that were, um, you know, sort of the beginning when the band was like really sort of unstable and the members were just changing all the time and they just didn't have the strength that they had had, you know, previously. The Ugly had completely changed. They were an entirely new band from what they had been. And, and it was also a time, too, when a lot of people were getting into heroin. So, you know, there was just like a lot of heaviness and sort of ugliness and transformation. And, you know, and when they said the last poem, it really was kind of like the end of... Um, of kind of the the of the best period of of that uh, you know that first movement. Thank you so much, Don Pyle, for phoning into the Nardwar to Human Serviette Radio Show here today for part three of our interview. If anybody wants to hear parts one and two, you can check out nardwar.com and click on Radio Show, or just check it in iTunes for Nardwar versus Don Pyle. So this is the continuation, part three, the end of part three, and you've been so thorough, Don, that you mailed me long ago a whole bunch of tunes to play as well to sprinkle the interview with. So to end, I want to play as much as we could of the tunes that you sent me. I'm going to continue on by playing a bit more of that radio documentary. It's going to begin with by a gentleman saying, the vile tones are delightfully degenerate. (laughs) And then it's going to go into a bunch of other tunes. And maybe you could tell the people what we're going to hear in this order. We're going to hear shadowy men on a shadowy planet, three-piece suit, then phonocomb, clogs from the crypt, babies run my world, cardboard brains, to have some fun, the ugly, black heel marks, weirdo, and tearing me apart, teenage head i'm gonna play as much as i can of those tracks anything you want to mention about any of those bands here wow that's a great lineup <laughs> uh so let me see shadowy men three-piece suit that was from our third album sport fishing that we recorded with steve albini in chicago um and um uh, Phonocomb clogs from the crypt. Yeah, that's uh, the band that uh, Reed and I had after Shadowy Men with uh, Dallas Good, who is in the Sadies and who who now plays bass in Shadowy Men, and uh, and also Beverly Breckenridge, who uh, was in Fifth Column, who I played with in Fifth Column. Uh, so we did two albums. We did uh, an album with just Reed Dallas and myself with Jad Fair. And then um, Reed and I have been writing all these sh- all these songs, and then basically Shadowy Men had taken a year off, and Reed was undergoing treatment for cancer during that year, and him and I just kept writing songs uh, during that time, and um, you know we did the album with Jad Fair, and uh, we loved playing with Dallas, so you know we just. He started playing with us, and we started learning those songs. And uh, and then 
we got a show, and and uh, <laughs> two weeks before the show, we thought, oh, this song would sound better with a bass player, so maybe we should ask Beverly to play with us. So we asked Beverly to play on a couple of songs, and of course, like you know, a band with two guitars and drums with no bass, it, it sounded better with a bass. So she ended up playing the whole show with us and learning all of our songs in just two weeks. Uh, so we did that album that came out on uh, Quarter Stick, the uh, label, the Touch and Go label. Um, also, um, let me see, is um, uh, an album that I put out there. That's, uh, half the album is done with uh, Bill Henderson, the, the, the Big Kahuna, and uh, uh, both of them are from the Tacoma, Washington band. So the song you're going to play, Weirdo, is... Uh, is with uh, Kurt and Bill from Girl Trouble. Uh, Babies Run My World, that's from the last Pogo thing. Cardboard Brains, like, you know, one of the kind of, like, the weird sort of art bands that were, uh, you know, around in the, the punk scene that did, they released, you know, a fair bit of stuff. They had a 7-inch single, a 12-inch single. There was a compilation CD that came out years later. They're on that last Pogo thing. And... Um, you know, they were uh, quite a good band, and um, um, one of the other guys in that band, Vince Carlucci, also did a lot of photographs around that time. After I did my photo, the first time I did a photo exhibit that resulted in me getting the book deal uh, for Trouble in the Camera Club, after I did mine, Vince uh, Carlucci from... Uh, uh, Cardboard Brains did a photo exhibit, and he has some really fantastic photos as well. Very similar period, uh, you know, slightly different perspective. And um, let me see, the Teenage Head song, what, what song was it, Tearing Me Apart? Tearing Me Apart, as issued yeah. in Germany. Yeah, Tearing Me Apart, which I'm pretty sure the, the version that I gave you is uh, the original 7-inch single version, which is, uh, to me, is like you know, them at their best. Uh, the first seven-inch single is just so good. It's uh, <clears throat> The production on it is, is far superior to uh, the first album, and, um, you know, a really sensational song, and uh, the, yeah, the better version of, of what got released. Although they... Uh, I don't remember if they did that on their first album. I think they did do Tear Me Apart on that album, and they eventually remixed it, and it sounds much better now, but for a long time, that version was... Well, that one came out first. That was, you know, out for, you know, a good six months or a year before the, uh, the album came out. And so, also, if we have time to have some fun, The Ugly. Yeah, that was uh, from, from their... Uh, from their seven-inch single, and so that was like sort of the second version of the band. Uh, Sam and Tony, who had uh, been in the Ugly for uh, you know since the very beginning, had quit the band and joined the Vile Tones, and so the whole band was all new. Um, and so they did this single, which sounded nothing like what the Ugly had ever sounded like before. It was like you know much kind of like poppier and and sounding like an attempt to be commercial. And I remember at the time thinking like that it was a really lame single because the ugly were so aggressive and so powerful. Um, 
that the single was kind of a shock. It sounded nothing like what the ugly sounded like. <clears throat> In retrospect, I think the record's fantastic. I think it's a really, really good record. But you know, my expectations of it when it came out, I uh, I didn't hear it as being a really good record. But that's from their their one and only seven inch single. And you know, again, another band that um, Jan House you were talking about earlier. You know, his uh, his punk hall of fame series of CDs. He, he eventually put out a, uh, a compilation of, of uh, The Ugly that is, uh, is also quite good. But I think that that single might even be on that compilation. I'm not quite sure. But it also has one of my favorite band pictures from that period because uh, Tony, the drummer, Sam had left the band. Sam... Uh, He'd left the band and joined the Violetones. The Violetones were a five-piece for a while. And Sam and Tony had been, you know, really good friends in the Ugly, and Sam was trying to talk Tony into quitting the band and joining with the Violetones. So when all of the band in the Violetones quit, except for Sam to start The Secrets, then uh, Tony left the Ugly to also play in the Violetones. So on the cover of that single, there's four guys pictured, and then on one of the guys on the end, you see someone's hand on his shoulder. It's like the classic, like, cutting the guy who quit the band out of the photo, but his arm is still there around someone's shoulder. It's one of my favorite things in band photos. Members cut out. We had one last question from a caller, an email question, and they were wondering about Regent Park, because I mentioned you're an expert on Toronto, and they were wondering if there are any punk gigs in Regent Park at all that you ever played. In Regent Park? Well, they didn't really have shows there. Um, Well, not that I'm aware of. I mean, there was no... no venue. I'm trying to think if there was anything that was like... In Regent Park, I don't think there was anything. Uh, There's nothing that I'm aware of. Okay. Well, thanks so much again for phoning into the Nardwarda Human Serviette Radio Show, Don Pyle. Really appreciate it. And as you mentioned, the last Pogo.net is a great documentary people can check out, and they've got a new DVD out with extra footage. So check out the last Pogo.net if you want to learn more about the Toronto punk scene and also your own website, TroubleInTheCameraClub.com, to purchase your book. Yes. Anything else you'd like to say to the people out there at all, Don Pyle, on an Art of Human Surfia radio show? Thank you again for concluding part three. Uh, just doot doot. Uh, almost, well, kind of. We will have some doot dooting, but first we're going to hear a bit more of some vile tones, a little degenerate vile tones. Then we're going to hear Shadowy Men on a Shadowy Planet, then some phonocomb, cardboard brains, the ugly, black hill marks, and teenage head. That's what we have lined up for you. Hopefully, you can get to most of the Nardwarta Human Serviette radio show. So, thanks again. Really appreciate your time and all your amazing photos and rock and roll memory. Thank you for remembering all this stuff, and thanks for continuing on with all the rock and roll. 
Cobra stuff. Oh, my God. <laughs> it, it, totally inspiration, and I'm glad I can finish one of my resolutions for 2014 was to speak to Don Pyle. It's been 24 years, so I'm glad that we've finally been able to finish that. It took three parts, but thank you for coming on the Nardwarty Human Serviette radio show again, and thanks for also sending all these great tunes. We're about to hear some rare stuff coming up. So thanks so much, Don Pyle. Good to talk to you. Keep on rocking in the free world, and doot-doot-a-loot-doo. The Valentine's are delightfully degenerate. You got a razor blade around your neck and you got a belt around your neck. Yeah, what about it? What, what, what's it mean? What are you trying to tell me? I'm not trying to say anything. I just came here to go have a good time. <laughs> I know, I find that... <laughs> Well, I like that, goddammit. The star of the Vile Tones is Nazi Dog. Between sets, I cornered him by the pool table. Doc, how you doing? Uh, you working hard? Yeah. Why don't you tell us what you're wearing? What? Why don't you tell me what you're wearing? T-shirt and jeans. Yeah, and uh, any accessories, any jewelry? or? Yeah, I'm wearing a dog collar and some safety pins. And a razor blade, because I think it looks cool. Yeah, what about this t-shirt? Looks like it's seen better days. It's got a swastika on it. I just like the swastika, that's all. Yeah? You like Jewish people? Do you? Yeah. So do I. Yeah. A lot of people really don't understand what, what you're trying to do, you know? A lot of people wonder what's going on. Why, why don't you tell us? Everybody here understands. I'm just against everything that was in the 60s. Everything that was love is now hate. That's all I think. That's all. How, how did that happen? Um, it's just the way it is, you know? It just turned that way. I mean, like, how did love come out of Elvis? I mean, Elvis was hard, right? And like, how did love come out of stuff like that in the 60s? So how did hate come out of there? Is this natural? It was the next uh, progression. How you doing, Colin? So where would things progress then from hate? Back to love again or something different? No, I don't care. I don't care if the kids kill themselves. I just don't care. I don't care if I kill myself. I don't care. That's all. Like, I don't, like, these guys play rock and roll. The other group's better than us, right? The facts are that we are rock and roll, and that's all. Do you have any rock and roll heroes? I like Tommy James. I like the Shondells. They're probably my favorite group. That's all. What do you want to do with this band? Um, get a lot of girls. No, you don't! You want, a lot of boys. you want other girls? I'm his girlfriend. You're the girl. I'm the girl. You're going to be around a while or you're going to kill yourself? When I'm 24. When you're 24? Yeah, I'm 18 now. That's the honest to God truth. Musically, what, what, what's going on up there? It seems very simple. It is very simple. But that's all I can really tell is that the other groups play rock and roll and we are rock and roll. It's nothing else. It's all on the surface, you know? It's all. Do you really invite people to throw things at you, like beer bottles and stuff? Well, I'll probably do it the next set. Do you ever get hurt up there? Yeah, sometimes. I just got, like, uh, 13 stitches right there last time. So that's all part of rock and roll, then? Yeah, you can't expect to be a rock singer and not take a few bumps, right? You can be like Gatto and Brutus and be, like, real sweet and, like, capitalize and be pseudo. 
or you can be the real thing, that's all. And we're the real thing. We're from Cabbage Town and we're broke, that's all. I, I thought you were I thought you were rich kids and uh, you're just sort of getting your rocks out here. My parent, my dad's in advertising, all right? But the rest of the guys are poor and so am I. We're supposed to take you seriously and, and pay attention. Is, is, there, is there something deep here or is it just on the surface, out front, blatant rock and roll? You're too old. You're too old. You have a beard. I can't even grow a beard yet. I don't even have hair to my chest. The Nazi dog slices himself up in the course of the night's last tune, which sounds like all the rest that have gone down before. He's lying down. He's still alive as far as we can tell, and the drummer has driven one of his sticks through the snare. He kicks over the kit. The amps are thrown down, and the buzz fades into feedback. And that's it for the Vile Tones, a pretentious and precocious collection of curious youngsters who probably don't take themselves very seriously. The lights come on and the girls with the lipstick are tumbling towards the door. Up on Young Street, a young man's carrying his partner who's had a pint too many. It's rainy, the streets are shiny, and the neon glares among the late-night punks shuffling off towards the subway and home to the suburbs.